This episode is brought to you by our incredible community of listener supporters on Patreon. Our Patreon offers listeners exclusive archival content, extended episodes, and access to community conversations diving deeper with past guests. Your monthly pledge ensures that For the Wild has the funding to keep producing informative, thoughtful, and rooted conversations and programming. All funding supports our small team of creatives, podcast production, and special For the Wild projects like our zines and slow study courses. To support us on Patreon, please visit patreon.com slash for the wild, or if you would rather make a one-time donation or recurring donation outside of Patreon, please visit for the wild.world slash donate. For the Wild podcast is brought to you in part by the Calliopeia Foundation and listeners like you. Calliopeia supports projects interweaving spirituality, culture, and ecology. We are grateful for their support and the support of grassroots contributions from listeners. To learn more about the Calliopeia Foundation, visit calliopeia.org. To make a donation to For the Wild, visit forthewild.world slash donate or support us through Patreon. Hello and welcome to For the Wild podcast. I'm Ayana Young. Today I'll be speaking with Teju Adisa Farrar, a Jamaican-American writer, geographer, and poet whose work focuses on urban culture, environmental issues, climate justice, alternative geographies, and sustainable futures. So I'm thinking about a reframing of space and reframing of identity in space and then placemaking, right? How do we remake place to align with the values and the justice that we know is necessary to give us continuity? Because after all, nature does what it must to continue. Yes, there is tensions. Yes, there is killing. Yes, there is eating. Yes, there is sex. But nature will continue. And humans have gone against nature. And that's why our continuity is at stake. Having lived in five European countries and done projects in several others for over a decade, Teju's work has centered on political, racial, and environmental justice. Teju uses a transnational, diasporic lens that is informed by culturally resonant moments, art, and activism. She is interested in mapping and documenting Black, resilient, ecological futures— Teju spends her time on consulting with progressive organizations, supporting community initiatives, doing transnational projects, conducting equity trainings, and giving talks on alternatives. Teju is based in Oakland, California, but often in other places because she goes where she is called. Well, Teju, thank you so much for joining me today. I'd like to begin by highlighting the importance of alternative geographies and Black geography and placemaking. Now, you've mentioned that you're interested in mapping and documenting Black futures as being resilient and ecological futures. So can you start by explaining how your work focuses on Black geography as a global project and why just transitions should be deeply attuned to geographies that exemplify innovation and adaptability? Absolutely. Thank you for that wonderful introduction, Ayana. I really appreciate it. And everything you shared that was written about me and that I say about myself has to do with the way that I understand space, place, and identity. In my understanding of the work that I do and what is necessary to create a more equitable 
and sustainable society has to do with how we understand space, how we understand power relations, and understand how we position ourselves within these systems. And so my foundation sort of in Black geographies and alternative geographies has a lot to do with the understanding of humanity and modernity and the ways in which humans have created racialized structures and appropriated space in order to usurp and appropriate power. And so Black geographies are human geographies because we were humans before we were racialized as Black. And what also we can use Black geographies to understand is the ways in which people have remade and reimagined their lack of space or the spaces that they're given and have taken space, even though they're sort of constructed and designed in ways that sometimes does and allow certain agencies. And I think racialization really limits the agency of Black people, which has required innovation, resilience, and resistance innovation, and also working within the margins and remapping the way we understand space and place and identity. And I think also this sort of correlation between the globalization of Blackness, the creation of this social construction, and the ways in which that period of time corresponded with colonialism and the transatlantic slave trade, which had a lot to do with resource extraction and labor extraction. And was sort of this reckoning of how we are living in the world today and some of the myriad injustices and inequities that have contributed to climate change very much find their foundation in sort of colonialism, the transatlantic slave trade, and the racialization of Blackness as it pertains to geographies, the literal remapping of the world, starting with the remapping of Africa in 1848 and the way that the U.S. was settled and other places in the Americas. So I really use Black geographies as a way to think about how humans have constructed space and reconstruct space to maintain power for, say, white supremacy or other forms of nationalism and oppression that we all experience and suffer from. Does that answer your question, Mm. sort of? (laughs) Oh my gosh, so articulately. Thank you for just diving right in to these very deep and complex topics with us from the get-go, Teju. It was such a wonderful introduction. And now I want to speak to your work, and especially as it centers political, racial, and environmental justice. And of course, being from Oakland, I'd love to transition to a conversation on gentrification. Now, I know many listeners are intimately familiar with the lived experience of gentrification, as it is now a global phenomenon. But I think something that isn't discussed as much is the environmental impacts of gentrification, which to be clear, should not supersede conversations on the social and cultural impacts but should be accounted for holistically. So I'd love if you could speak to the implications of constant urban growth in terms of air quality, carbon emissions, and so on. And how are the areas that are being gentrified also often areas that are unsuitable for such growth? Yes, absolutely. So as you said, it's important to note that gentrification is a global phenomenon and has different manifestations in different parts of the world, whether that's Brixton in London or Matonge in Brussels or even Cartagena, Colombia, which is a coastal city. And in the U.S., We see it very rapidly in the Bay Area, where I am in Oakland, in New York City, and even after Hurricane Katrina in New Orleans as well. 
So it is something that is global primarily because it is a consequence of capitalism and gentrification in its current state is a consequence of what we call late capitalism, which talks about the ways in which capitalism is embedded in all facets of culture. So gentrification is heavily related to the identity of a space that is going to be appropriated. So what makes it possible is that over time, certain places, be they neighborhoods, be they communities, are devalued because of the type of people that live there, whether it's working class and or people of color and or immigrant communities, whether it's formerly industrial sites, which usually are surrounded by neighborhoods where working class people who have worked on such sites live, or whether it's on land that is maybe in a precarious location, like a coast because of land erosion or because people were literally pushed to the margins. In the case of Black communities, because of the transatlantic slave trade, many Black communities in the Americas live on coasts still because that's where some of the maroon communities were in where escaped enslaved individuals went. So first of all, gentrification takes place in land that has become devalued over time because of the type of people that live there, right? There's no investment in that area. There is not a lot of economic opportunities in that area. There may be just one big economic driver, whether it's a refinery or some other industrial plant that was formerly there. And so over a course of some decades, that property can then be purchased by real estate agencies or sometimes sold by the cities themselves to developers at a very cheap price. And then they redevelop it with more hip and trendy buildings. They usually add other services and necessities that weren't there before, like gyms and cafes. And then that area, the property value increases. The people who were there, the people who were seen as sort of disposable or devalued can't always continue to afford to live there. And so they are pushed out and replaced by a different demographic, usually one that is middle class, usually one that is whiter. And all of this is happening through revitalization, in some cases is the term used, but that also implies heavy development, heavy construction, heavy displacement in the first wave of gentrification that I identify in the U.S. in the Bay Area, particularly in the 60s, was the redevelopment of the Fillmore neighborhood, which included the Gary Boulevard thoroughfare, which meant that eminent domain, taking houses from people by the city, allowed for developers to come in and change the landscape of the neighborhood. So through specific types of urban practices and urban policies, gentrification is able to happen, which increases construction and development. And also in cases of areas that were on toxic land or on waterfronts is putting us at greater risk for issues of climate change. And further creates carbon emissions because as we know, buildings account for more than 30% of carbon emission outputs globally. We know that construction, particularly hasty construction, using cheaper materials, using materials that maybe are shiny and nice, but not good quality, increases toxins and increases risk. As with the Grenfell Tower in London, part of the reason why the fire spread so quickly was because they put a facade on the building that was dangerous and flammable material because they wanted to make the tower look nicer for the neighboring community, which was a wealthy community, right? So even as we're revitalizing and redeveloping quickly, we're using materials that are more dangerous to people who live there, even if they may look shiny and new and nice. In addition to increasing commutes that are caused by displacement when people can no longer afford
afford to live in the areas that they were living in and working in, they have to move a little bit further out, sometimes a lot further out, which increases their use of transportation, leaving them with less time to rest and to spend with family. In addition to, in general, rampant homelessness, the use of sidewalks under freeways, really any open space parks for homeless people to live. So you can't really control waste. You can't really control the strain on the environment. You can't even really be efficient in your use of space because so many people can't afford to live in the spaces that are being developed. So all of these issues work in tandem to make gentrification very environmentally unstable in addition to its social and cultural impacts. And in my feeling about the way society works, social, culture, and economic responses have a lot to do with our environment, have a lot to do with space, because space in this specific context is power and money. And so I think when we're thinking about the environment and environmental issues, we need to think about the strain urbanization already has on our ecologies and ecosystems. So then we add the additional strain of gentrification and all the consequences of it, such as mass pollution, mass displacement, mass homelessness, then you're further exasperating the ecological strains that are already compounded by urbanization. Goodness, the visuals I was getting from your response of the development, which I've seen firsthand. And I'm sure all of us who are listening have seen the gentrification and the quote revitalization of areas. And yeah, building materials are completely toxic. So when they burn, all of that goes into the air and then down onto the soil. And it's just so important to be understanding gentrification through the myriad of lenses. So thank you so much for explaining that to us. And now something we were speaking about in our conversation before this conversation was about speculative investing. And so I'm wondering if you could share with us how speculative investing contributes to this problem and really highlights the absolute absurdity of this model of growth across all industries. Absolutely. So as we think about what is usually termed revitalization and redevelopment, we have to wonder where the money is coming from for this to happen. Because a lot of times, cities that are experiencing gentrification, there is these public and private partnerships, meaning public, the city, and private having to do with whether it's real estate or investment agencies. And this allows cities to make some money or not have to spend money as their place is getting redeveloped and will hopefully bring in more economic investment, right? Which is the way that cities are thinking these days because of capitalism, wanting more investment, wanting more tourism, wanting more economic opportunities for certain people, not others, wanting to be seen as a global city, to be seen as the place to live. We love these lists of the five blessed cities to live or the five best cities to visit or the 10 most smart cities, right? And so this whole marketing and propaganda around revitalization and redeveloping cities and how we love these before and after comparisons. Oakland was one of the most dangerous cities in the 90s, and now it's one of the highest grossing income cities, right? That sort of dichotomy we love in society today. And so I'll start by saying that this is about money, right? It's about getting money for certain people and investing money in certain areas to increase the money that can be made. This is about profits. And also a lot of cities don't always have budgets to do the redevelopment that they may want to do. So even if they have good intentions, they will let in these sort of speculative investment firms and these sort of real estate agencies that do a lot of redevelopment so that they can 
do some of the things they may have wanted to do, but didn't have the economic means to do. So it's not always that cities are inherently trying to just make money. Sometimes they would like to redevelop their areas and fix roads and they feel like they don't have the money to do so. So speculative real estate has to do with the fact that there are people buying whole buildings, there are companies buying whole blocks, buying whole neighborhoods, and they are paying to build them and to redevelop the area and they put prices on the rent and the mortgages that people who currently live there can't always afford. And they're not even sure if there will be enough people to fill those places that they're creating, to fill the apartment buildings that they're building. And even if there are enough people, which there are, because there's increased homelessness, they can't afford to live in this place. And so they're not actually buying the property or creating the property to live in it themselves or for people who currently exist in this place to be able to live in it. They're buying it with the hopes that wealthy people will come to this area, middle-class people will come to this area and be able to afford the increased or what they call market rents that these buildings that they're speculatively developing have. So it's based on idealistic economic realities and not current structural realities and not current housing market, but speculative housing market. So a housing market in the future or a housing market in a place where most people are middle class, most people are wealthy. There are not people who are working class or impoverished who are living there. Of course, they work there and do the service jobs, but they don't live there. So the idea is that they can speculate on an area, on a price, and those people will come. So that is what makes it dangerous because they're not actually building housing for people who are there. And in some cases, these elites are coming from places in China and parts of Western Asia, what we call the Middle East. Sometimes they're just very wealthy Americans and Europeans who are buying apartments or investing in condos, investing in townhouses, investing in buildings that are not necessarily currently affordable for the current landscape and will require new residents to come in and purchase and or rent from them. It's just so ridiculous. And to think that there are people who don't have homes when there's these speculative homes being built with nobody in them. It's just complete insanity. And it really makes me think how gentrified spaces are being fashioned in an expedited manner without any care for longevity or community or even survival. And yeah, it leads me to wonder what a sustainable future looks like for urban areas. As of 2017, it was calculated that over 4 billion people live in urban areas. And so while many of us romanticize a return to the land or even think about the ways in which living off the land will aid us in our survival, I think we're failing to have a conversation about how urban areas can adapt for people who live in urban areas and would like to continue to do so. So I'm wondering if you'd be comfortable speaking to this and do you foresee an undoing of once urbanized and gentrified spaces or an adaptation? Mm -hmm. This is a really important question. And I think what you said about gentrification was spot on. It is a lack of empathy. And I know that sounds like an emotional response, but lack of empathy has a lot to do with the situation that we're in. Not only empathy for each other, but empathy for the land and other living species. This idea that certain things just happen, that they're not by design and that there's no feelings about it. Cities change and they are revitalized, redeveloped, 
left to be devalued. It's a cycle and there are no feelings involved. This idea of the market, the market being a place that will regulate itself, which we know is not true, that there are no feelings involved. And of course, this is all about our emotions and our feelings about ourselves as humans, as animals, and about power and trying to have power over everything. So as you said, more than half the world's population live in urban environments, urban settlements, in cities. There is increasing urbanization, especially as climate change has forced migration from rural and agricultural areas back to the city for economic opportunities because they could no longer farm. Uh, Dhaka, the capital of Bangladesh, which is a huge city, has had almost a million climate refugees over the past years come from parts of the country where because of increased natural disasters and soil erosion and salination in the soil, they can no longer farm for subsistence. So they have to move into the cities, into the already cramped capital city of Dhaka to find work. And they start to build their own housing and own urban settlements because there's not enough housing. um, There's not enough space. And so not only are we having to adapt for these intersections of economic immigration and climate immigration, which are connected, but also in general for the ways in which our environment changing, global warming, you can call it, or climate change will start to affect our cities more heavily. So not only are they more dense, and density in this case is more ecological if it is done in an efficient way, in an equitable way, in a way where people have the appropriate space and are not creating spaces on top of each other and in undesirable places. And also we have to think about what it means to adapt for the changing weather, for the unpredictability of what it's going to be like every day, for the increasing damage that's done by natural disasters in places in what we call the global south already experience a lot of natural disasters and climate change induced environmental dangers. But in the West, for those of us who don't feel like we experience the dangerous effects of climate change immediately, we're just kind of like, should I wear a sweater today or not? And it's supposed to be colder in February, but it's not. But as those start to increase and the weather becomes more extreme um, and more unpredictable, we will have to find ways to adapt in cities. We'll have to find ways to live more aligned with each other, right, as humans and to work together. But also, like, what are the innovations, the ecosystems that we could try to regenerate, the shifting of the economics of cities so that we're spending less time in air-conditioned buildings and lights with offices on. We're spending less time traveling back and forth across the country in a plane or even just back and forth across the state of California in a plane. We're spending less time commuting in our cars. We're having more pedestrian spaces in cities. We're having more bike-friendly spaces in cities, not bike-friendly planned in an ad hoc way, which is happening in Oakland, but bike-friendly meaning that people have access to bikes and space and to walking and to having to spend less time in cars. They have heating that is not one dangerous for their health, right, because of the fumes from heating, but that is also maybe solar powered or wind powered. How are we returning to using urban spaces for urban gardening, for revitalizing and regenerating the ecologies that were near? Because cities 
would not exist without surrounding agricultural ecologies, without surrounding farming areas. So how do we reconnect to those areas and create a circular economy where we're getting things locally and organic and we're not infusing them with toxins or pesticides? What does it look like to live in communities that actually feel like communities where you're sharing resources, whether that be collectively owned energy, where you're sharing food from the community garden, where you're sharing space, having cultural community centers where people feel comfortable going to do dance and to do meditation and to get their mind in the right place that it needs to be to work in this new framing of interdependence and slowing down and consuming less and consuming differently and being interdependent. And so when I think about urban futures, I think about the possibility to completely transform the way we've created human settlements over time. Human settlements have shifted from ancient Mesopotamia to feudal Europe to plantation systems in the U.S. They have shifted and we can continue to shift them towards equity so that we have some hope for sustainability. And that really includes a reframing, a paradigm shift in our mind about what it means to be urban, about what it means to be a citizen, about what it means to be in relation to a man-made border, not an ecological border, what it means to be having to adapt and reframe our privilege and to work with people who previously we thought were much more different than us. So I'm thinking about a reframing of space and reframing of identity in space and then placemaking, right? How do we remake place to align with the values and the justice that we know is necessary to give us continuity because after all nature does what it must to continue. Yes, there is tensions. Yes, there is killing. Yes, there is eating. Yes, there is sex, but nature will continue and humans have gone against nature and that's why our continuity is at stake. So we need to remind ourselves that we are part of nature, right? We are just flowers in a sense who have forgotten ourselves so that we can continue as well. And continuity cannot happen with unlimited growth, with mass extraction, with this idea of scaling. Plants grow, but they don't scale. We need to take back the word growth even because it's been appropriated by capitalist language to mean this unlimited thing that has no borders for people who are rich, but has very well-defined borders for people who are poor. It is meant that things can continuously scale and be devoid of place-based and culturally relevant and nuanced specificities. It means that the global community doesn't have any say in how the market, quote-unquote, regulates itself. So we have to not only take back the language, but take back our idea of what it means to continue and what it means to consume continuously and what it means to extract resources. We have to give back what we are taken so that there is more to take. And then if we give back, there will be more to take. But right now we are not giving back. Many of us are not. Indigenous people have understood these cycles for millennia. That's why they've been stewards of this land, but we have disrupted that spiritual connection to it. And so we've forgotten ourselves and that's why we're in the situation we're in. So adapting in the urban sense is about human continuity and human continuity can only happen if we start to understand the ecologies and ecosystems that we are trying to have power over and that we have already disrupted with our urbanization in the first place.
I'm noticing across the globe, we're really witnessing a coalescing of nationalism, populism, and environmentalism, which is to say that once again, environmental fears are being used to promote anti-immigrant and white supremacist frameworks. Whether it's the El Paso shooter who targeted the Latinx community while espousing that in order for life to become more sustainable, we have to get rid of enough people, or French politician Jordan Bardella citing borders as the environment's greatest ally. So it is undeniable that ecological ideas and misanthropic tendencies are revitalizing racial and ethnic divisions. So as someone who strongly reiterates that reality that, quote, there is no separate survival, can you speak to how these misplaced fears amongst global populations are actually only to the benefit of an elite minority? Absolutely. So environmental extraction works alongside the racialization of certain communities, particularly indigenous black and brown communities, because it refers to this idea that there is not enough. And so we need to take more than we need because we are hoarding it because there is not enough. So there is a fabricated scarcity so that a few people can hoard while the rest of us fight each other for what is left, which is why I believe in collective ownership and the commons. I don't think that will solve everything, but it's a start because part of the problem is privatization of natural resources, things that should not be able to be bought, like water, like air. Because of the privatization of resources, there needs to be a way to justify certain people having a lot more than other people. And one of the ways we can justify certain people having a lot more than other people is by saying certain people are inferior and other people are superior. And it's not that we're saying that in explicit language. It's that we're creating and designing structures that allow a small percentage of mostly white American and European men owning huge amounts of wealth while white and black and Asian and other racialized people who are not wealthy elites are fighting about who deserves what and who worked for what and who needs to work harder and who deserves certain rights, certain aspects of humanity. And that allows a very small group of mostly white, mostly men, mostly Western elites to hoard wealth. Meanwhile, the divisions that exist among the rest of us will almost surely limit our ability to organize together against the elite wealth. Right. So there needs to be a way that poor white person in Appalachia does not identify with a poor black person in Georgia, because if they realize that they have more in common with each other 
than that poor white man has with Trump and that the people who exist in Trump's world do not care that you're white or black, they would like to have wealth, then they can make sure that you don't try to take what is theirs and redistribute it among the rest of us, right? And so it's about hoarding power in order to make wealth and connecting this sort of racialized identity to the environment will most certainly allow this to continue because our environment is what's most immediate to us. It's what we survive off of. So if you can make it seem like an environmental issue when really you're just trying to use that to disguise systems of power, then it allows you to continue to do what you're doing at the expense of other humans. And so people who are not at all in positions of power, who are not at all having access to wealth, feel as if they can identify with these people based on socially constructed racial categories, and then they enact violence essentially for the elites on people who should really be their allies, who people who should really be their comrades, on people who are in a more similar situation than them. But this mentality, this paradigm, this racialized idea of identity and white supremacy and nationalism and populism has completely eradicated a sort of class analysis, a sort of understanding that we as working class people, as even middle class people, people to some extent, and even as the less wealthy but rich people have more in common than the very small percentage of mostly white, mostly Western, mostly men who own great swaths of wealth based on the exploitation of all of our labor, um, because our wages are not equal to the amount of value that the products we produce actually have. So we don't even feel purpose in our work because we don't have ownership of it because we're told what to do. We feel like we have limited agency and because we're paid not based on the value of what we produce, but based on the wages that were decided by people who own this private capital that should really belong to all of us. So when we understand the class structures involved, we know that anything and everything, especially the climate, especially the environment, especially public health as it pertains to coronavirus, will automatically reinforce systems of white supremacy, systems of populism and white-wing conservatism that only benefit a very small part of the population, right? And so we have to think about how the way that humans have created their relationship to power, they will use everything around them to reinforce those relationships to power and the environment what we need to live, the most foundational piece of humanity, which is the earth, which is the environment, is now weaponized against people who should be seeing themselves in each other in order to create a future where we can all together overthrow, if you will, the systems of extraction and wealth hoarding that be. So I think I kind of answered your question about those sort of intersections And I just say that to say that the geography of the environment will always be weaponized for power. And that's why we have to rethink and reclaim our understanding of environment and our understanding of geography in general. And knowing that most political borders, most nation states 
are only a couple hundred years old. So we have very short memory of humans. There have been so many systems before the capitalist nation state system that we have now. Just 500 years ago, there was a different understanding of the map. Just 600 years ago, there were countries that were not countries, that were communities, that were tribes, that were settlements that now exist under certain rules of law, under certain borders that were created and drawn. So if we can remap our brains and our understanding of history, then we could certainly remap our current understanding of the environment, which is so heavily embedded with racism and classism. Mm -hmm. Wow. Teju, that was really, (laughs) I think you did answer the question. And I think you also expressed beyond the question. And that was really stunning to hear. So thank you. And I want to speak to your positionality statement as you write, quote, as I seek out alternative spaces of belonging and pathways to a co-collaborative, collective future, I am acutely aware that inclusion is not enough. We need co-creation. As I continued to search for the other world, I realized that some of us, those of us deemed other, are the other world, end quote. And I'd like to take this opportunity to explore the differences between co-creation versus inclusion because I feel that in the dominant culture, we're still very much caught up in the terminology of diversity and inclusion. So I'm wondering, what does the practice of co-creation look like for you? So as you started the previous question, you used the quote, there is no separate survival. That is a quote from a friend of mine, Nadia Nadasen, who went to my master's program with me, and she shared that as an affirmation. And I think of it as an affirmation as well as a warning. And so when we're thinking about our positionality, when we're thinking about investing in co-creation and not just inclusion and diversity, we have to think about the literal reality that if we continue to be separated and divided based on hoarding power privileges and racialized hierarchies, then we will not survive. Very literally, we will not survive. And so what does it mean when we are thinking about diversity and inclusion, yet we haven't changed the way we do the work, yet we haven't changed whose decision making matters most, yet we haven't changed our funding structures and what we're able to fund. And so when we think about inclusion and diversity, they are essentially only theoretical if we don't know what that means for practice. And so co-creation which is, in my opinion, the practice of inclusion, diversity, and equity means that we are not bringing people into the fold, but thinking about what the fold is that we created and how do we change it completely so that rather than bringing people in, we are building something new with others. And so it's about recreating, reimagining, and refashioning the way that we do work along with the people who we know are necessary for the future that we want to coexist in. And so it's not just about bringing in more people of color or talking to more people who maybe identify in ways that I identify. It's about talking with me and working with me and saying, how do we build completely new systems where you don't feel like you're on the margins, where you don't feel like because of how you look, you're devalued, when you don't feel like because of who you love that you cannot belong in a space? How do we together 
recreate something from the bottom that is non-hierarchical, that is uncolonial, that is non-patriarchal, that in fact is non-binary, that doesn't rely on these dichotomies of black and white, that doesn't rely on these dichotomies of poor and rich, that relies on cooperation, collaboration. And that doesn't necessarily mean consensus, right? I don't think we need consensus necessarily to work together, but we need to be in the space together where everyone's voice is equally heard and everyone's experience is equally valid. And we recognize that there is not a sense of objectivity or neutrality. All of us are subjective. All of our politics, our identity politics, whether you're white, whether you're black, whether you don't identify with the race, all politics are identity politics because we all have an identity. And the way that we position ourselves in that identity, whether that's acknowledging or not acknowledging certain social constructs that we live in, our politics are deeply personal. And so when we think about creating things together, uh, not just next to, not just bringing in a few more people who look different from us or who grew up with less than us or who grew up with more than us, we have to think about how do we work with people who may think that what we're doing is not the right thing, even if we were so attached to the idea that we had the right intention. And so it's important to think about how can we change our intentions so that we could change our outcomes? How do we change the processes? How do we reimagine the way to functionalize equity so that the outcomes actually reflect what is necessary for new futures? And the outcomes will most certainly mean you are not in the position that you think you're in now. And that's fine because there's enough for all of us. Scarcity is by design. But if we are still trying to hoard power, then we include people, we bring them in, we have diversity, we add more, but we don't actually change the way we do the work and change the power dynamics of who can make decisions, whose strategy is seen as valid, whose positioning is seen as being objective versus who positioning is seen as being subjective. Everyone is subjective, right? Objectivity is a very specific hegemonic framework used in academia to allow those of us who don't think of ourselves as other, to study those who we think of as other, other being inferior, other being not civilized, other being not economic, other being not geographic. It's all of these things that in the Western context, we don't see ourselves as being. But in the Western context, because of globalization and because of colonialism and imperialism and the transatlantic slave trade, because of that, there are pieces of the other in the West. There are pieces of those of us deemed other who have created and constructed the literal buildings of places in the West. It is the labor of the other being my ancestors who literally constructed the architecture of a lot of this country. It is the other, the indigenous people who stewarded these lands for centuries so that people could settle here and extract all of the regeneration that they created and worked in tandem with nature with for several centuries, right? So this idea of the other being right here, being not at the margins, but in the very center of the geographies that we exist in, tapping into, acknowledging, seeing us, those of us deemed other in the center of these kind of Western hegemonic structures allows us to rethink how we can live, encourages us to rethink about how we can collaborate differently, allows us to rethink about our relation to power and our feelings of scarcity and our uncomfortableness with our 
privilege. So when we realize that the other world, the world that some of us are trying to get to that is just as more equitable, actually is already existing in some of these spaces, sometimes because of oppression and exclusion and trauma, and sometimes because people who identify as Black and Brown and Indigenous know what the future could be like based on these ancient ancestral lineages, which were more regenerative in some cases. So having those of us deemed other or those of us who identify as feeling othered within the current landscape, recognizing that we have been here and we have been innovating and we have been adapting and we have been resisting and that those tools, adapting, being resilient, resisting, innovating, using less than we have are the same tools that we need to create an equitable future. I mean, soul food is a great example. The master scraps were left and Black people created this amazing, very delicious food, which eaten in mass is not good for the health, but right, it was because of the scraps that they created what needed to be a celebration and to taste good. And so we don't have to use the scraps because there's enough for all of us if some of us give up things that we're hoarding. And if some of us allow others to come in and maybe take the lead and in some cases help us give away some of the things that we don't necessarily need. If we let other people come in and talk to us in a way that makes us feel uncomfortable, if we let people come in and share space with us and make the space as safe as it can be for the others, then we're going to really have some opportunities for survival. So just including people, just having people there, just being next to people is not enough to change the outcome. So we have to co-create. We really have to co-create. And part of what's scary about co-creation is that we have to start over and no one likes to start over. But I believe that in order to do what's right, we have to start over. That is my positioning. And that is why that is in the statement, because I believe it's the only way. And so a lot of my work has to do with repositioning people and acknowledging their position and helping them understand if we remap our mindset and our brains, then we could remap our relationship to the environment and create more collaborative and codependent and co-creative spaces. Yeah. As I prepared for this interview, I was particularly struck by two issues you further in your writing. The first being that charity cannot be conflated with justice. And recently, we've certainly seen this happening with climate change, where billionaires who've made their wealth through extraction are now donating meager amounts to the so-called fight on climate change. And so I'd like to discuss this topic in conversation to a powerful article you wrote titled Nipsey Hussle's Geographies, Remapping the Hood and Opportunities for Black Space, wherein you write, quote, Nipsey's death is a crucial reminder that spatial inequity is a form of violence. When our environment is designed so that we are not able to thrive, we end up killing each other in an attempt to claim a little piece of what should be all of ours, but few have access to. Around the world, but in the case of the United States, the forsaking of poor neighborhoods and self-built communities is a form of environmental and psychological violence, end quote. So perhaps you could speak to why and how we need to move away from the philanthropic endeavors to a reprioritization of collective ownership and how that physically changes community and space. 
So charity is not justice. Philanthropy in general exists because there is systemic structural inequality. In order for people to have great swaths of money to give away, it's because through the exploitation of labor and the mass extraction of resources, they have been able to acquire more than they can work for. There's some statistics rolling around the internet about how many thousands of lifetimes you'd have to work to amass the amount of wealth that Jeff Bezos has to disconnect this idea of working hard to wealth. Because as we know in this country, those who work the hardest often are not the wealthiest because poverty is systemic. It's institutionalized. Poverty fuels capitalism because without having a huge impoverished class, you can't have the mass amounts of wealth being hoarded by a few people. And so when we see acts of charity, when we see people who have amassed a lot of wealth, usually in this case in problematic ways, we are so excited about it because we're programmed to think that they're giving away what they have earned themselves. And so when you give away something you've earned yourself, you're seen as being altruistic, as being apathetic, right? But as you said, Ayana, most of these people have amassed wealth from the very environmental degradative practices that have given them the wealth. So giving money away to an environmental issue when what you do and how you do it, specifically how you do it, creates more environmental issues is not actually solving the problem of the environmental issue, right? So it's not that you're necessarily not a good person for giving away your tax benefit money, giving away the money that you did not amass by working for it hard by yourself. It's not that you're bad just because you give charity, even though you've amassed wealth in a way that is extractive and exploitive. It's just that we should really think about what redistribution means rather than charity, which is necessarily predicated upon systematic poverty. So charity doesn't solve the root of the problem. The fact that charity has to be such a huge industry, right? Development aid, philanthropy, charity are huge industries because they show how through those lenses, through those methods, we don't actually solve poverty. If we actually solved poverty through philanthropy, then there would be no more poverty, right? Because then there wouldn't be philanthropy. So you need poverty and philanthropy. That's the point of that statement. But what I'm getting at here is that when we rethink, I'm saying that so much, but it's really true. When we rethink and reframe wealth distribution as something that is going to be radical, something that's not connected to tax breaks, something that's not connected to a wealthy few giving away a very meager portion of their wealth, their wealth that continues to compound. When we think about actually changing economic structures so that people cannot accumulate mass amounts of wealth at the expense of mass amounts of people, then we're really thinking about what it means to redistribute our wealth and redistribute the mass amounts of wealth that comes from resource extraction and labor. So there's no way to do redistribution with philanthropy unless philanthropists and philanthropic organizations give away all of their money in a way that inspires and encourages and functionalizes regenerative neighborhoods, regenerative communities, rather than allows them to keep amassing wealth and giving it away in very structured, specific, and limiting ways. So Nipsey Hussle 
Hustle, my brother's favorite rapper, was a good example of what it looks like to actually own the spaces that you have lived in and be able to create in them what the community really needs, not what's imposed on them from the city government or from real estate agencies or from speculative developers. And so Nipsey Hustle, having grown up in that neighborhood, knew exactly what the neighborhood needed. It needed activities. It needed shops. It needed places for people to congregate and hang out that were safe. It needed places for families to go to have fun. And so he was thinking about not just like my hood, right? Because we always say my hood or my neighborhood, but what does it actually mean when it's our hood, when we create what's there, when we benefit from what's there, when we feel safe there, when we have economic opportunities there, what does my hood then really feel like? It's not just this idea about feeling like it's your hood, but having the possibility to change what happens there, to create things that will allow you to thrive there, to create things that will allow you to be safe there, and to create things that are regenerative and don't require these influxes of aid and charity that don't actually get at the structural root causes of the problem. So I think philanthropy is important and significant for the period of time our societies are at right now. Yes, give away your money, but please also stop doing the practices and supporting the systems that have created the foundations and families and few wealthy people I was talking about before to amass great amounts of wealth. And don't give them a high five because all they're doing is redistributing what we should all collectively own, what they didn't work for by themselves. So we don't need to give Jeff Bezos a clap up for donating however much he donated to the environment. We need to give Jeff Bezos a clap up when he makes Amazon a cooperatively owned company that doesn't have warehouses shipping things in two days with all the pollution that that causes and all the emissions that that causes when every employee has health care because the first thing he did when he became CEO was take away health care from all part-time employees, even if they were working 32 hours. So we need to clap it up when the actual capital, when the actual things that we are using and need to live are given back to all of us and cooperatively owned. We don't need to be high-fiving philanthropy for justice because if it is truly justice, then we will not need philanthropy. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think it's important to remember that people who donate big sums of money or philanthropists, they also get a tax break. It's not just giving money. It's beneficial for their businesses. The money that Jeff Bezos gave away, <laughs> I'm sure it supported him in some way and it supported his friends. So the nonprofit industrial complex, philanthropic industrial complex, it's a way to also pat each other, like the people in their circles on their own backs. You know, it's really convoluted back there. And I yeah, and for them mm-hmm. to keep their wealth. The right. tax breaks allow them to not pay as many taxes, Ta- exactly. taxes which goes to public development. Mm-hmm. And so then they could continue to amass wealth and not have to give it away. Mm-hmm. So even the fact that tax breaks allow them to give away less wealth and then through giving away wealth, right? What we right. see is giving away wealth. If they're not giving away wealth, they're giving away money. So the difference between charity and systemic restructuring is that you would redistribute wealth and not give away money if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I think that's a really important distinction. And yeah, it is really messy back in that system. <laughs> and it definitely needs to be shifted completely. So thanks for speaking to that. And yeah, as a creative, a writer and a poet who has also been trained in the academic field of geography, 
I'm hoping we can turn to the function of language. And what I mean is in the ways in which many of us take on language that is assumed to have power and promise. And I'll speak for myself in that there's increasing pressure to use a certain type of language when having these conversations. So I'd like to ask about the limitations you find within this imposed language and how our wording might be preventative to co-creation. So the irony about language is that our whole conversation will be exclusionary to so many people because of the ways that we're talking, because of the ways that I'm connecting things, because of the phrases that I'm using, because of my accent, because of my inflections, because of my articulations, all of these will affect who is able to listen and follow this conversation. So even in what we're doing right now, there are immense amounts of limits and it is exclusionary, not to the effect of academia, right? Maybe not to that sort of level, especially because resources will be provided, but just because of the type of language we know how to use, we've been raised using the way that we speak, how we're speaking to each other, how we're understanding each other, So language is all of these things. The other thing that I'll say is I speak English. English is my first language. It's the language that I am fluent in. It is a language that the people who were enslaved, captured from the continent of Africa, were not speaking when they were brought here to the Americas, in my case, to Jamaica and the United States. So even my language is a colonial language, which means I don't have words, not in a colonized language to describe myself, to think about who I am, to think about my relationship to nature, to think about my relationship to time, right? And so even our language limits what we're able to even talk about and how we're able to talk about it. I have a lot of friends in Europe who do work on blackness and black racialization. And because in certain languages, there is not the racial term for black, there's not the same terms that we can use in English. They speak and write in English to reach a wider audience, to have language to describe their subjective situation. But of course, translation is limited. You can't describe everything through translation. You can't get the nuances. You can't get the feelings. You can't always get the cultural specificity. So me speaking English, speaking a colonial language, speaking an imperialistic language already means that I'm asserting certain power because there are people across the world who will not be able to understand what I'm saying just because of the fact that I'm speaking English and then the type of English that I'm speaking. No doubt I am influenced by academia. Both my parents have PhDs. I myself have a master's and I've spent a lot of time doing research in academia where you are encouraged to use jargon. You are encouraged to say things in these theoretical, dense, roundabout ways rather than just saying the thing. When you're encouraged to use phrases which refer to phrases which refer to phrases from a whole book based on a whole person's work like intersectionality and then we forget what it meant in the first place and what it was a framework for. And we just expect that people know what we're talking about when we say certain things. So in that sense, language is limiting for a variety of reasons, and especially colonial language. I think the other thing is that we don't really want people to understand what we're saying, right? That is sort of the ethos, in my opinion, of academia. Because if people understand what we're really saying, then we would have to include them in what we're really saying. And we couldn't just research them and talk about them. We'd have to talk with them if they knew what we were actually saying. So it's also a way, in my opinion, to cut off the ability for co-collaboration, for co-creation, because certain people don't even know 
what we're talking about. So I always say that I've taken a break from academic publishing because I can't write academically to the point necessary where people that I'm talking about don't even know that I'm talking about them and I'm supposed to be talking with them and about us, not them, right? Even that dichotomy of there's a them that we're talking about and there's a us that is neutral and that is objective. So even the language creating the barriers between who was part of the conversation who is part of the discourse and who is not part of the conversation, who is not part of the discourse, who doesn't even understand the conversation. And so one of the things I remember asking you before we had this conversation was about what type of language I could use to be as accessible to as many people as possible. And we kind of agreed that I should speak in the way that I speak, which in some ways is inaccessible to mass amounts of people and allows me to think through certain ideas and complexities and not oversimplify in some cases, but also means that a lot more people will not be able to just listen to this long, dense conversation and know exactly what my point is or what I'm saying about movement building or what I'm saying about transitioning the climate and our environment. So I struggle with language all the time because I'm a writer. And so I write about these things that can be complex and misunderstood. And because I speak English and because I come from an academic background, I come from an artist intellectual background, I come from an activist intellectual background in the communities that I was raised in, in Oakland specifically. So it's even hard for me to think about how I can speak in a way that's more accessible. And I do speak differently depending on where I am and who I'm talking to and what I'm trying to say and what my intention is and what I want the outcome to be. And as a poet, there is some sort of flexibility because you can use words not to necessarily mean what they mean, but to incite a feeling, to incite an understanding, to communicate familiarity, to communicate subjectivities, to communicate the depth of things. So one of my favorite lines from a poem I wrote is, when the giant wave comes washing over our bodies, Black people will become mermaids and Indigenous people will become seeds. What will you become? Right? So just in that sentence, I'm talking about climate change. I'm talking about the fact that Black communities live on coastlines. I'm talking about speculative geography in the case of if in an imaginary sci-fi world, Black people didn't die when the sea levels rose, but instead we became mermaids and created underwater societies and adapted our Blackness. I'm talking about indigenous people being stewards of this land and being the ones who seeded what we now can extract today. So in that sentence, I'm not saying all of the things I just said to explain the sentence, but people could somehow feel that I'm talking about something that is very important to our existential sense of self, that is very important to how we think we fit into this equation, that is very important to how we understand what is going to happen to all of us, what is very important to how we understand life and death and afterlife and history and geography. And so I think poetry gives me more possibilities than writing articles, but then also means that it's up for interpretation, that people may not fully understand, that people may think I'm talking about the Black version of The Little Mermaid, that people may be confused about how Indigenous people become seeds. There's so many interpretations. People may think of Octavia Butler. There's so many things that could be interpreted from that sentence. So while it allows a sense of feeling to come over people, it also is limited. So I use these different content mediums, speaking, writing, poetry, in order to think about the different ways that I could use the limits of language and try to create less limits for language. But we need a new language entirely, something that is not just about speaking audibly, but 
other things, sounds, touch, conversation, nature, air, smells, words in different languages, learning other languages more, speaking other languages more, thinking about translation more. Because when you speak another language, you're forced to think about what you're really trying to say. And you're forced to think about not only what you're really trying to say, but will the other person understand it? So when you're learning a new language, what's most important is, will the people who speak that language fluently understand what I'm saying? When we speak English to each other, when we assume people speak English, we're not so caught up in, will they understand what I'm trying to say, we're just caught up in what we're saying, right? So even this sort of narcissism of an imperial language like English, that we're going to say whatever we're going to say and people have to understand it. And that's a lack of empathy. So also thinking about how we can use language to create more empathy, which will then hopefully change the way that we do things, which will then hopefully create an expansion of language and outside of colonial bounds, outside of Western designations. My friend was telling me that there are several words in different languages. I think most notably I heard about it in some South Asian languages that the word for today and tomorrow was the same word and that the way you knew what they were talking about was the context. So even our understanding of time is being linear. And yet in some languages, the word that breaks this linear idea of time is the same word for today and tomorrow. And so what does that even mean about how we experience time? So anyways, I'm going down a rabbit hole. But yes, language is limiting. Language is exclusionary. And yet it is our role as people who use language, as people who primarily exist in spoken or signed language to find ways to expand it so more people can participate in this discourse, in this co-creative process. thank you for going down that wormhole because, yeah, it's important for us to consider these things when we're trying to connect with each other and we're trying to build new systems and tear down the old ones of how we relate, how we connect, how language separates us, but at the same time brings us together. It is a kind of vortex of a thought process. So thank you for taking us down there with you. Now, this strays from where our conversation has been, but I came across an article you co-authored titled, How Freeway Revolts Helped Create the People's Environmental Law. And most recently, the Trump administration announced that federal agencies should no longer take climate change into account when looking at the impact of infrastructure projects through the National Environmental Policy Act. (laughs) So, It's just crazy, but I'd love if you could speak to the importance of NEPA, its origin, and what this grave overhaul means. 
So NEPA is the National Environmental Policy Act. It was voted on unanimously in 1969 and enacted in 1970. One of the things that NEPA does is require the state government and now other companies to do an environmental impact study when they're about to do a project in a community or nearby neighborhood. And so what this means is that theoretically, the community or the residents from the nearby neighborhood have a say in how the project will negatively and or positively impact their environment. Now, usually when people have a say, it's because it will negatively impact their environment or they feel like they were not involved in the process. But why this is important is because as I was talking about the designing of spaces, the appropriation of spaces, and how urban planning and revitalization and redevelopment has remapped some of our spaces, they also have specifically been as a way to further disenfranchise and further marginalize certain people. So the origins of NEPA is that in the 1960s, there was something called the freeway revolts, where across the U.S., residents, not just Black people, Black people, Latinx people, white people in some cases were revolting, were resisting, were using civil disobedience and direct action against these proposed freeways that were supposed to go through their neighborhood. So I mentioned the Gary Boulevard thoroughfare in the Fillmore neighborhood, but this was happening all across the country. And the reason why it was happening was because after World War II, Several millions of African-Americans migrated from the South to the Northeast, to the North, to the Midwest, to the Northwest for more economic opportunities to escape the Jim Crow South, to find other possibilities for themselves and their families. And so that meant that there was an influx of Black people into U.S. cities across the Northeast and across the West. And so as there was an influx of Black Americans, people who identified as white or identified with whiteness or for some reason had anti-Black sentiment, wanted to live away from the increasingly Black inner city, the increasingly Black urban cores of the cities. And so they wanted suburbs, which promoted white flight. And in order to live in the suburbs, but work in the city, because the city is where the economic opportunities are, you need freeways, you need highways. And so this first wave, I call it the first wave of gentrification, was really taking hold in the 1960s with the creation of freeways, sometimes through neighborhoods to separate a white area from a black area, sometimes through cities so that people can get out of the city to live in the suburbs. And so what this meant is that people were unhappy about how having freeways through their neighborhoods, about having all this traffic noise and all of the pollution and completely cutting them off from other people and also certain services, certain opportunities, dividing the space. And so they started revolting against these freeways. They started revolting against the way that urban planning was happening in the cities based on racism. And it also further reinforced the racialization of space and residential segregation, which is why when you look at communities of color across the country, in many cases, if there is something that is polluting or toxic, it is in their neighborhood because you have such acute residential segregation that you're 
you're able to just put all of the undesirable stuff with the undesirable people. And then there's a freeway through there. And so you forget about them because they're completely cut off. I grew up in West Oakland, which is situated between three major highways and next to a port. So it's a cloud of fog over West Oakland and all of us children in the neighborhood had asthma. And at the time, children in West Oakland had the highest rates of asthma in the Bay Area because of that urban design process, which contributed to the environmental pollution, which was a result of residential segregation. And so these connections are apparent throughout our history of designing cities. And so the National Environmental Policy Act was a way to give communities a say in how these types of projects go about doing what they're doing or if they should even be allowed to go forward. And so the reason why it needs to be gutted in the case of the Trump administration is so that people can continue to do these toxic, polluting, exclusive, dividing projects without having to hear from the community, without having to be accountable to the communities that they're impacting. So it's extremely important in the legal sense to give people standing, right, which means giving people a reason to be in courts. It's important to give communities a reason to be in court to fight the projects that affect where they live and the quality of their life. And so when you're trying to just do things for profit, you don't want to think of other people because that gets in the way of doing what's most profitable because usually what's most profitable is at the expense of human safety, security, and livelihood. So if humans can put their safety, security, and livelihood on the table when you're trying to propose a project, it makes it more difficult for you. So the National Environmental Policy Act helps support communities and fighting against things that affect their livelihood and their environment. And this history of civil disobedience and direct action prompted by the urban revitalization that was racialized, the racialization of space in cities is what created the need for this policy act. And so it continues as the resistance continues, as people continue to fight for their communities and their neighborhoods and their space, that we need all the legal tools that we can get to fight them. We need to fight them on the ground, in the courts, in the sky, everywhere. Wherever we can fight them, we need more tools to do so. And the National Environmental Policy Act is one of those tools. I'm so with you there, that we need all the tools we can get and to lose NEPA right out from underneath us with so many people not even knowing that it's under threat would be, yeah, I just can't imagine. Well, I can imagine, I guess that's what's so frightening about it. What could happen if we lose public processes like NEPA? Because I feel like it's kind of a domino effect. The more access we lose to be in direct engagement with these larger resource extraction projects, the less rules there will be the more impact there will be in a negative way. So thank you for speaking to that. And Teju, this has been such a deep and complex conversation. And I'm left with the reminder that the world is not condemned to a death sentence. (laughs) And we have a lot of work to do, but we have a lot of tools and amazing leadership to follow to do this work. And so I'd like to ask if you have any personal incantations for our earth and our communities before we say goodbye. 
Absolutely. I just want to say thank you, Ayana, for your thoughtfulness and your patience and your encouragement and your vocal resonance, affirmations of some of the things that I'm saying, because sometimes I just think I'm going in circles. So it's nice to be understood and seen. And so I appreciate you for providing the space where I can talk about the way that my mind works and how I translate that into the work that I do with organizations and collectives. So again, I just want to thank you for creating that space for me and for being so gentle and soft and also thoughtful and engaged and informed. With that, a current incantation, if you will, a song that I've been listening to on a daily basis. There's so many things that I feel from the sounds produced in the song. It's called Love is the Message, and it's by Yusef Dayes, an alphamist, and it features Mansoor Brown and Rocco Palladino. It's this 12-minute amalgamation array of amazing sounds that Yusef Days, the drummer, is making, produced by Alpha Mist, with all of these little details and nuances and notes that just make you forget what you were worried about, what you were stressed about, and just remind you that all of it comes down to love, which is a physical vibration in our body, which we have to figure out how to operationalize and functionalize through equity. And so Yusuf Day is alphamist. Love is a message is the incantation that I am listening to every day to just like feel what it feels like to be a human in my body, to be connected to the environment, to be connected to nature, to be able to breathe air, even if it's sometimes not clean, to drink water and feel nourished, to have access to clean water. So I would like to leave you with that song as an incantation and hopefully you could listen to it and dance around to it and just enjoy all the sounds that they've created so amazingly with their instrumentation. Mm. I can't wait to listen. And thank you for being willing to speak to us in these ways. And I'm so grateful to create space for you to unwind your mind with us because there's so much in there. And I've loved being on this mental journey with you for the last hour or so. It's been eye-opening and it's been expansive. And yeah, I think that we need to sit in these conversations a lot more with each other and just keep going at it day by day because it's huge problems. But unless we're willing to really sit there and deconstruct and reconstruct together, I don't think we're going to get to where we're trying to go. So thank you, Teju, again. Thanks for listening to another episode of For the Wild podcast. I'm audio producer Andrew Stores. The music you heard today was from Jason Marsalis, Kermit Ruffins, and Irvin Mayfield, and the Rebirth Brass Band. I'd like to thank our host and founder, Ayana Young, along with the rest of our podcast team, Carter Lou McElroy, Aidan McRae, Francesca Glassbell, Hannah Wilton, Erica Ekram, Aaron Wise, and Melanie Younger.